no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for this word, the, the teachings that we have in Mark. We thank you for the life that Jesus lived among us. Uh, we thank you for his authority and his power that are demonstrated here. Uh, we pray that you would speak to our hearts uh, from this passage. We pray that you would be with Nick as he would unfold this to us today. And uh, we'd lift this time up and ask that your spirit would just open our hearts uh, to what you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If you don't have your Bibles open already, if you will turn with me to Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It's such a humbling thing to be before you, to read God's Word, and to really have the opportunity this week to focus on really the heart of the gospel. The topic today that we're going to be looking at in a Hold on a second. The topic that we're going to be looking at today in Mark's gospel is the topic of forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus' authority to do such, to forgive people's sins. This is the very heart of the Christian faith. This is what makes the good news good news to sinners. Because it's not really good news to sinners that there is a good God who's going to judge a sinful world, a sinful world that's in rebellion, a sinful world that has rejected him and is going to ultimately go to hell. That, while God is good, it's, you know, it's good news that God is good. That's not good news to the sinner. But what was the message that Paul went throughout the world preaching and proclaiming good news to the entire world. What was the good news of the apostles to sinners? It was the good news that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And that's the topic that we are introduced to. We have been going through the gospel of Mark and how Mark has been introducing us to who Jesus is is he's introducing us to Jesus's authority. Authority is the thing that makes a king a king to begin with. Jesus has demonstrated his authority to heal, eradicating either viral infections or bacterial skin diseases that render someone unclean. He can, by the very voice, by fiat, speaking, evaporate those things. Jesus is able to teach teachings in a way that no other person is able to teach things. Jesus teaches things from authority of his own self. As the king, as God's representative, as the God-man. Jesus demonstrates an authority that so far throughout Mark's gospel has not been challenged. 
Because really no power can challenge Jesus's authority. However, what we see in our text, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, we see the very first instance where Jesus's authority is challenged. In verses, the text that we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 through 12, is the very first in a series of five challenges to Jesus's authority. Jesus's authority to forgive in the first 12 verses, then Jesus's authority to be and associate with sinners, to be around, rather. Jesus's authority to teach things that then are not the same teachings as the scribes, the religious experts, people who memorized large portions of scripture, and they saw themselves as the authority. But Jesus then, in verses 18 through 22, challenges their authority on what fasting is, their authority on the Sabbath in verses 23 through 28, and then lastly, in 1 through 6, they're teaching specifically on the Sabbath and doing good on the Sabbath. Jesus is having his authority challenged, and it's fitting that the first time his authority is challenged by the world, it's challenged in his authority to forgive sinners. Because this is why he came. 1 Timothy 1.15 summarizes the good news as Jesus came to save sinners. And what makes it good is what Paul says after that, of whom I am the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. That's where the attack is leveled. And we see this in a really beautiful story, don't we? This, the story of this paralytic. And we're going to follow, for the first five verses, a display of faith that really puts this, the issue of the forgiveness of sins to the fore. And then we're going to look at verses 6 through 9, the ensuing debate. The debate around this issue, does Jesus really have this authority he claims to have? Or is it merely something that he just says? Something unverifiable about Jesus? And then lastly, we're going to look at this authority of Jesus to forgive. It's going to be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at a display of faith, the, the challenge that he has, the suing challenge, the suing debate. And then lastly, Jesus's authority being proven in the last three verses. So if you'll go with me, look at verse 1, because we need to pick up where we last left off. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home, and many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Jesus here, the last time we left him off, he went throughout all Galilee, verse 39 of verse, chapter 1, preaching throughout their synagogues in the region of Galilee. And he was unable to, he had, he was unable to go into town centers because the leper that he had healed disobeyed his, world, uh, his word in verse 45, the last verse of Mark chapter 1, that he went out, began to talk freely about it, and spread the news so, fact, so far, in fact, that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he had to go out into the wilderness. And the other gospels really focus on what then he goes out and does. But Mark skips over it because the focus of his gospel and his introduction is to introduce you not only to Jesus's authority, but how right as Jesus had a public ministry and right when it started really booming in popularity, that it was challenged from the very outset by the religious leadership. After some days, it was reported that he had finally come home, probably returning to Peter's mother-in-law's house, where he was across from the synagogue before, where he had done the miracle of healings prior to this, where before people knew to flock to his house to such an extent that he was healing way into the night and then early into the next morning. And there were so many gathered there that there was no room in the house. 
not even at the doorway. And this could mean either inside the house that right when you open the home of Jesus, so many people were packed in there that you opened and there was just a wall of people and there's no chance of getting in. Or more likely, even the surrounding area around his house was gathered at the door to hear him because of what he was doing. Verse two, he was, and he was preaching the word to them. This is why he came. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, of which he was the king. And he was clarifying to all people what the Messiah would look like. And it was not to look like what they were expecting. And Jesus, as he's preaching the world, we get to the objects, really the the main characters of this display of faith in verse 3. And they came, who? Well, it's the four guys who are bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him let down on the bed on which the paralytic lay. So these guys are carrying their friend, most likely on some sort of quilt, some sort of mat. There's four of them because there's four corners of the bed. His friends are carrying this invalid, and the Greek word for paralytic is, fortunately for us, it's paralytic, not too complicated. It's where we get the same idea. Someone who is unable to walk, could have been a quadriplegic, unable with arms or legs to move, or he could have just been unable to walk, period. But this guy was in desperate need of healing. We don't know if if he was born like this or if something happened to him afterwards, But what he knew and what he believed was that Jesus could heal his physical body because he had seen it done. He had heard the news spread of how he cast out demons, how he could heal diseases. And now his, whether he had a broken back, whether he had uh, deformed legs, whether he had not walked in so long that he had just skeletons for legs without any muscle on them, he knew that if Jesus merely spoke the word he would be well and able to walk. He believed in him. And we have reason to believe that he believed more. But also, we must not forget also the fact that there was four people with him who also were concerned to get him in. They come up to the house that they could not get into. And if I was that, those friends, I would have said, well, there's, it's too busy right now. Why don't we try Jesus later? Or at least if you really need to get healed tonight, why don't we just stay until it gets late and the crowd finally dies dies down, get to Jesus, lay you before him, and have Jesus heal you. But that's not what they did. There was a sense in their faith, the display of faith that Mark is showing us is something to be that Jesus marvels at when he sees their faith is also the urgency of their faith. They, in their seeing the crowd, no one letting them in, no one parting to let this paralyzed man in, they walk around, probably around the steps to the, uh, the, the roof of the house, which it would have been like a square, one-story building. And when they are unroofing the roof, which is always fun to read those things in the original, it just says that he unroofed the roof. That's what they did. Unroofing the roof was not as complicated as a task as it would be for us. You know, for us, we would have to remove the shingles, get through the tar, get through the wood. Not something you could really do with your bare hands, but this was something, uh, easier task for them. But think about what's going on in the house. There still would be debris falling on Jesus's head while he's teaching, or at least some of the listeners. And they're tearing through the roof, making a hole, it says, big enough that they can let down this guy on their mat and lower him in front of Jesus. But the most important thing here, it says, when, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Two things. First in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he tells them that they're forgiven. He's not just referring to the paralytic here. He's also referring 
to the whole group that had faith in Jesus to bring the paralyzed man, to lay him before him for healing. And he does respond in love and kindness and care to this man. He calls the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. So we even know that this paralytic had faith in Jesus. And maybe what's most obvious to us, the fact that Jesus forgives sins, is something that would have been the most surprising to them. And it will be the most surprising to us if we just put ourselves in this story. What are these people coming for? They're coming to see their friend healed. To see his muscles restored, that he can walk again. And what does Jesus give him? Jesus gives them forgiveness of sins. And before we keep going, do you believe that? Do you believe that if Jesus was alive here today, that our cancer, that if we went to Jesus and he said, your cancer is gone, that it would be gone. That if you cannot walk, that Jesus could come up to you and say, your legs be healed, and that they would be healed. That's the faith they had in this man. That's the faith that they had. They knew that he would be able to, and it wasn't unreasonable. They had seen him do this. A Christian's trust in Christ to save us is not a blind leap of faith. We trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ, that he can do what he says he can do. And in his word, he tells us that he can forgive sins. And what he gives them, he says to them that, son, your sins are forgiven. The response to faith that Jesus has to, towards this man is to forgive his sins. Why did he grant him the forgiveness of sins upon seeing his faith? If any man, greatest need in this life would be physical healing, you would think it would be a paralyzed man. Someone who cannot walk or provide himself or work. But Jesus sees as this man's greatest need, the greatest thing he can provide for him is the forgiveness of sins. Why? This whole text is funneling towards verse 10. And let's go ahead and get ahead of ourselves there. When he responds to the Pharisees, and he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. That's the root of this passage. That's the focus. The display of faith is really a setup for this line. And Jesus, when he gets into conflict with the Pharisees, with the scribes, that's his aim, is to get to this issue, to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. This man's greatest need from Jesus was something only Jesus could do. 4 Acts 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Even this man's paralysis was a temporary condition. One that would have plagued him for his, his entire life. However, our short little lives, and I don't mean to belittle any suffering, but Paul in first, 2 Corinthians 4 says that this light momentary affliction, referring to the span of our lives, does, is by comparison to the eternal weight of glory that Christians will receive at their death, is just a blink of an eye. It's not to minimize our suffering, but it's to get our minds focused on the reality that hell is real. Heaven is real. That people's greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And think how this should shape the way that we approach missions. The PCA was formed, one of the core ingredients, one of the three things, focal points in this denomination was started back in 73, 1973, was the focus on the Great Commission. 
because the missionaries that we were sending out in the early 70s from the Presbyterian Church in the United States were not preaching the forgiveness of sins. And yes, it is great to focus on the needs of healing, building wells, dentists going out on the field and making sure people have healthy teeth so that they have a healthy body, doctors going out, all these things are wonderful things that we should be doing. But we must not, especially the church, must not forget that the primary mission is primary, preaching Christ and him crucified, that if you believe on him, you will have your sins forgiven. The reason why we're to focus on that, and that's to be the primary thing that we are about when it comes to missions, is because that is the greatest, most loving thing that we can tell any other sinner. Because the fact of the matter is, is that we are born in darkness, enslaved to our sin. We have right now a different ruler of this world who is dragging us with him, pulling us, and we have to admit, kind of willingly so, to hell with him, where it will be internal torment, eternal pain. This is the most living, loving thing that he could give and respond to when it came to this display of faith. Second, while the display of faith revealed what the real issue was, the ensuing debate offered a challenge that really focused on this event. Really, the display of faith is a, a, really a setup, an understanding of the greatest need. But the reason why Mark is bringing this up is for this challenge, starting in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes did not just happen to be there. How were they sitting there with a seat and there was no room at the end? Well, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that at this event... In those days, on those days, this is Luke 5, 17, on those days as he, Jesus, was teaching there, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Not surprisingly, the religious leaders, the experts in the Old Testament, so let's it's kind of a derogatory term to say religious leadership. We're talking about people who knew their Old Testaments very, very well and had studied it, and they heard that someone for, who's doing messianic work is shown up, and he's in Capernaum in, a house, in his home right now preaching, and we need to be there. And they're sitting back. They've come from all over the region to hear him. And you know what? They said they were thinking in their minds Questioning in their hearts, another way of, they were thinking in their brain this question. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The accusation in their minds when they see that he says, your sins are forgiven. Their, re their reaction is, who does this guy think he is? If he thinks he's the Messiah, does he really think then that he can equate himself to the living God? The God who has said, there is me and there is no other. I have no partners. That in Genesis 1, he said, I alone created the heavens and the earth. And we see from Genesis 1 that God made everything and no one else was there to help him. He's equating himself to this God. This right here, he is blaspheming. What's that word mean? I recognized when I read that word that I didn't really, you know, I haven't really thought about that word, blasphemy. So I looked, and guess what? The word in Greek is blasphemy. So that didn't really help me too much. It's kind of like when you look at the word baptize in your Greek New Testament. It's just a trans, it's not a translated word. It's a transliterated word to sound just like the original word underneath the text. And this word blasphemy is used to cover a range of different topics. On his way to the Kraus, uh, Kraus, that's my last name. 
on the way to the cross, one of the criminals was hanging next to him. As the ESV says, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That line there, railed, is the blasphemy. He blasphemed Jesus and he said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. It's a taunt there. Acts 13, 45, but when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, blaspheming him. And they ended up trying to turn the crowds against him, spreading lies and slander. And Mark 15, those who passed by while he's being crucified, blasphemed him, Jesus, wagging their heads saying, oh, you destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, and he couldn't even save himself. What we're talking about here is basically a curse word. Really, the really what we mean by a curse word. They're calling, they're being incendiary, they're spreading lies. This word blasphemy covers lies, slander, offensive speech about God. And if you think about even our curse words in the English language, they're either filthy words or they're referring to religious things. God's curse be upon people is basically what they're saying. So this is a very harsh word, but it's only happening in their minds. And they say, who can forgive sins? This is the reason why they say he's blaspheming saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? These religious experts, these Old Testament scholars, their theology is exactly right. No one has the authority except God alone to forgive sins. Just a few brief examples. Psalm 51, David says that it's against you only have I sinned. When David killed Uriah, murdered someone, and lied to cover it up, he was sinning against God. Why? Because he broke his law. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. Genesis 18, 25, Abraham interacting God, uh, is interacting with God. And at the end, right before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, he says that God is the only arbiter of right and wrong, and that he is the one who has the right, that will not the judge of all the earth do what is right. The Bible explicitly says that despite his law being broken, though, his creatures living in rebellion, the interesting thing, though, that these Old Testament scholars are missing is that while God is harsh on sin, while God will punish sin, and he's the only one who has the prerogative to judge sin, We also see in the Old Testament, he's the only one who has the prerogative to forgive sin. Isaiah 55, when referring to the Israelites, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, our text. Why? Because he will have compassion on him. He will surely forgive his sins. This is God's prerogative. Their good theology about God, though, the reason why they're wrong is because it was wrongly applied to the person standing before them, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to note that the first tinge that they probably got, the first surprise and startlement that they had When Jesus, in verse 8, he says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? What is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Probably the first clue in response to their challenge in verses 6 and 7. Jesus shows insight into their hearts. 
And let me tell you, I've been kind of wrestling with this text. I've been wrestling with it because what we're getting an insight into when we look at a text like this is we're getting to look into the hypostatic union. What exactly means that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man? And what we're getting an insight into here is we're seeing that this man, the God-man, who has a true body and a true reasonable soul, uh, he has a human, he's a human being just like you and I are. We're made up of body and soul. And yet, he is able to see the hearts of other people, seeing their sins, able to say, your sins are forgiven, or I'm not giving myself to these people. Jesus Calvin, when I read his uh, take on this, perceiving in his spirit, noted that it wasn't, he didn't perceive, he didn't understand that they were thinking this in their hearts by his ear, by his sight, but he perceived it with his spirit. But it could also mean the same grammar of the text is that he perceived within himself, within his own soul, he realized this. Probably when he said that your sins are forgiven. He was watching. He could have seen the scribes in the back there squirming, thinking this within themselves. So really here, when we look at the grammar, it could go either way. So really what we have to do here is to say what it definitely is not. Some people understand Jesus, and this is an aside I'm trying to do briefly, because this even just blows my mind, is that one thing this is definitely is not is this is not Jesus being superhuman, that Jesus is, maybe he had the body of a man, but he has the being of God kind of stuffed inside him. No, Jesus is a truly a human being. The thing, though, to understand here about Jesus is that though he was truly a human being, he was also truly God, and in his human nature, he also had a unique role. He was the son of man. He was the son of man that was given authority, verse 10, on earth to forgive sins. Revelation 2, verse 23, talks about Jesus, how he is able to see the hearts of the Christians in the church he's speaking to, saying, I know your sins, perceiving them. We're talking about the same person here. And while it gets fuzzy here, the important thing to know is that him equating himself with God and however it works out in the God-man that he is able to discern and read the hearts of men, the important thing to know is that this God-man is holy God and holy man. That's why he's making the equation of himself to God. That's why their theology that only God can forgive, when they apply that true theology to Jesus Christ, they're wrong. Jesus is both son of God and son of man. He does have the authority, and he, Jesus, is the one who really initiates the challenge. They were just sitting in the back thinking themselves, maybe passive-aggressively, but they were not the ones who started this challenge. Jesus was. Jesus is the one who went after them, perceiving in their spirit as they questioned it within themselves, and he said, why do you question in your hearts? Why are you questioning my authority? Haven't they seen him demonstrate his authority time and time again? And he poses a test. What is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? In one sense, it's harder to say you're forgiven, isn't it? Because only God can do it. But Jesus' point here is what is easier to say? Something that is unverifiable, visibly, like your sins are forgiven. Anyone, I could tell you after the service, hey, your sins are forgiven. And you can ask me why, and I could say, because I said so. And that wouldn't really mean much. You would not be able to really verify that information, would you? Jesus, instead, to prove what the the former is true, that he's able to forgive sins, he does the latter. He does the thing that's visibly manifest, the thing that is verifiable, the thing that should show them evidence right in front of their faces that what Jesus is saying is true. 
Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he shifts to look to the paralytic. The display of faith brought up the issue of the forgiveness of sins. The challenges addressed what's going on here. How is Jesus able to say this and clarifying it? But lastly, we have this issue, his authority to forgive sins proven as he's turning to look at the paralytic, where he says, verse 11, I to say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. Notice everyone's amazed there. And glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What a strange occurrence this would have been to see Jesus before them, to see this miracle. And then to see that Jesus' focus was on to forgive this man's sins, a paralyzed man. And he only healed him as a proof that his sins truly were forgiven. That would have been quite the odd thing to say. But the fact of the matter is that he proved it. Sinclair Ferguson says, Here Mark unveils what lies at the heart of the gospel. Men need forgiveness, and Jesus gives it. The degree to which you see your own need for forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understood or understand the gospel. What makes the good news good? Why are the Pharisees rejecting this? Why is it so why is this the thing that they challenge? Why are they why is this proof given? And why is this proof not actually work? You know, we say all the time that if a miracle, I hear people say, if a miracle was done in front of me, or if God would do X, Y, and Z before me and before my eyes, then I would believe. If God would just speak to me in a dream or in a prayer, or and I heard his audible voice, then I would believe in him. The fact of the matter is, is there's not enough evidence in the world to convert a sinner. That the reason why the Pharisees reject Jesus and the reason why, if anyone rejects Jesus, the reason for it is because rebellion. It's because we don't want to believe. John chapter 9, we don't have time to turn there, but that is an excellent text to read, to see that the whole reason, to see the Pharisees' hearts and their rejection of Jesus is they refuse to believe that he has this authority. They don't want it to be, to be true because of the implications of what it means. The implications of following Jesus. Is that your case? Do you find yourself sometimes when you're struggling with doubts? Have you ever noticed that people struggle with doubts about following the Christian life when it gets in the way of things like maybe being with your girlfriend before you're married. That's usually when the doubt starts to settle in. When there's some sort of inhibition to what you want to do, and Jesus is standing in the way of that. We can't let that happen. It's been said many times that talking about the Christian worldview, the Christian perspective on reality... We have to realize that the reason why there's a Christian perspective on reality, yet that's true, but the reason why we talk on that is really what we're talking about is the true perspective on reality. There's only one perspective of our world that is true and right, and it's the objective world that God has made. And it's God's telling of what history means that's important. It's not left to us to figure out what this world is supposed to be designed to do. It's not left to us on how we are to save ourselves. God has told us he has designed the world and it's an objective reality that we either ignore and suppress or we submit to.
Forgiveness is the issue because it's the very core of Christianity. It's the core of what makes the good news good. That's why both Mark or Mark, Luke, and Matthew all record this same phrase that Jesus says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to, earth to forgive sins. That is why this is in our text. Please, do not let anyone deceive you with a different Christianity, a different message than the message that Jesus Christ forgives the sin of sinners. Christianity, the Bible, is first and foremost concerned with telling you that it is possible to have your sins forgiven. Why it's possible? Because Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. He says this command that you are forgiven because he knows what he's come to do. He came to die for our sins. He tells us how it is possible by faith. We see that in this display of faith, that that is the route, and that's always been the route, by the way, to forgiveness of sins. He says that it is necessary, why it is necessary, and that without it, we really are doomed. We need to be careful about buying into different gospels that tell us that Christianity, yes, it's the forgiveness of sins, sure, but really Christianity is about doing justice or doing X or doing that or doing some other thing, whatever your thing is. Christianity does have implications for how we live and what we do, but our Christian, our, the message that we've been given, the good news in the Bible, is not, a, is not a subject matter of do this, do that, but it's what Jesus Christ has done, what he has accomplished. That's what makes the good news good news. To summarize it, Jesus makes a simple point in verse 17. He says the reason why he does this is because it's the sick that are in need of a doctor, not those who are well. The main problem that the Pharisees will have, as we see in subsequent challenges, is that their problem is that they don't see themselves as a need of a Savior. They don't see themselves of need in need of forgiveness. We need to be careful about that, that we don't see sin as seriously as God sees sin. And we also need to be careful not to think that God does not care about sin, and that he'll simply forgive everyone. No, you can be assured that God cares about sin. He cares so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to pay for it. That's how much he cares about the forgiveness of sins and accomplishing it. That's how big of a problem he sees it as. If it wasn't a problem for us, if it wasn't our greatest need, he would never have went through the effort. If, Jesus, if God could have just simply declared your sins are forgiven and that was all it took and it was an easy task for him to do, then Jesus would have never come. The fact that he came is evidence that God is concerned with the forgiveness of sins. It's evidence of the fact that there's only one way and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that while we get a variety of messages in this world of how we should live our lives and different even religions competing for truth, we thank you that in your word that we've been given a sure word, a word that has been verified and demonstrated in history and throughout history, specifically in the accomplishment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have accomplished our forgiveness, and I pray that we would, just like the paralytic and just like his four friends, that we would believe that Jesus does have the authority not only to heal us if he was here before us today, but that he has the authority as he sits on the throne of God right now to forgive us our sins to deal with our greatest need, not just our temporary ones. And Lord, may our hearts be consumed with this need of the world to have the forgiveness of sins. 
and that we would be faithful to preach the message that in Jesus Christ, believing on him and resting on him alone, that forgiveness of sins is not actually just a possibility, but it's an actual accomplishment that we have in this life, the moment we believe and rest on your beloved son. Pray that as we continue our worship, that our hearts can be captivated by all that you have done to save us. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Normally at this time in the service, we would have the Lord's Supper. But for only a little while longer, come July 24th, uh, you'll have to wait no longer for that. But for now, the word, the Jesus that is presented to us in the Lord's Supper, we don't have to have a fear of missing out on that Jesus. Because the same Jesus that presents himself and eats with us at the table is the same Jesus that we hear preached in the word. The same Jesus who is with us as we are gathered together. The same Jesus who is with us always, even to the ends of the age. Let's, in light of that, stand together, if you are able, and confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. Confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed, which is printed in your bulletin. Let's confess it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We do have an exciting moment at this point in our worship service when I'm going to invite Tim and Karen Leftwich up in front with Robert, and we're going to have membership vows uh, given as we are having a new members join us. Uh, if you'll come up, go ahead and come up. We'll meet if you'll meet Robert at the front table. Oh. Yep, I forgot.
Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten men,
Now may the God of peace, who brought you again, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Robert has just a few announcements for us. Perhaps more than a few. Um, first, I would just like to let everybody know that we wanted to announce a congregational meeting um, on June 19th to present the budget to the congregation. This will be a, a brief meeting after the main service. Um, but that is, uh, put that on your calendar, June the 19th, uh, for just to present the budget for the coming year. Just real quick, those of you who are planning on coming to the Summer Branch Group at the Coop today, we're going to uh, do our prayer at 1230. So about 1215 or so, you want to probably get there and start setting up the food and whatever to get find a seat. And so uh, 1230 prayer will start. Wanted to call your attention to the bulletin, the announcements for the ladies' retreat. Um, we have a sign up in the back, so take a look at that, and we hope you can join us and just let us know. Um, please try to sign up this week or next week, and if you can bring in your deposit of fifty dollars by June twelfth, which is next Sunday, that would be great. Thank you. So, ladies, Sandra asked me to say a couple words encouraging you to come to the retreat, and I really want to speak to the introverts who would be hesitant to engage in that much peopling for that long because it's not really your jam. I understand that. As an introvert who's gone several times, I can tell you truly it's not painful. Um, it is edifying. It is a sweet time of encouragement and fellowship. And you will be blessed if you come and we would be blessed if you come. So please consider coming. You know, the Lord has blessed us greatly with uh, the property up on uh, 2897 Lower Hill Road, the Coop, as we know it. And uh, there's quite a bit of property involved up there. And what I like to, we're trying to do is uh, get some uh, people interested in uh, signing up to do the lawn maintenance. Uh, and so there's a couple of pieces of paper here that has uh, all the dates saturday dates through november and so if we could get a few people on each week to uh come up there and ride the mowers push a little trimming and stuff in the on the uh, grass part of it um we just purchased uh some a new lawnmower and a new string trimmer and we have another lawnmower we have two riding mowers we have a string trimmer we have two, a couple of push mowers and plenty of grass for them to eat up. So uh, I will be the contact on this. I will be doing, uh, performing the maintenance on all the equipment and make sure there's gas and oil and all of that kind of thing uh, that's available. So when the people come up on Saturday, or it doesn't have to be Saturday, but you know, that they'll just be able to hop on the, uh, the equipment and, and, and get it done. And so, and then if there's any maintenance issues, my, my phone number's on here. So you can notify me and then uh if you all you know and if there's any people lacking uh on any one day i can i'm usually available to uh come up and, and cut as well so thank you all very much i think that's all we have so please be dismissed for a time of fellowship thank you <laughs>